Okay. So I'll be reading Acts 21, verses 27, through to Acts 22, verse 29. It says, When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. Besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the riders saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd, some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, of Cilicia but brought up in this city. <coughs> I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. 
quick, he said. Leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. This is the word of the Lord. Just give me a minute as I set up. Oh, we've got the power. How good. All right. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Oliver, and I have the great privilege of bringing God's word to us tonight. Uh, this is the last sermon in the book of Acts for a while, and it is a big passage. Uh, so please make sure that you keep your Bibles open. Now, the first question I want to ask you today is, are you comfortable? Are you comfortable in the gospel? And how do you recognise that you are comfortable? Now, it sounds like a bit of a strange thing to ask, but when I say comfortable in the gospel, I mean comfortable in terms of complacency. Now, here in Australia, we would say that we live pretty comfortably, described by a government website as safe, prosperous and free with a friendly and relaxed culture. Sums up Australia pretty well, doesn't it? People who fall under the banner of Christianity can also have it pretty safe too. Uh, we can meet here each week in this factory unit. We can meet in each other's houses throughout the week. And we can grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus pretty freely, telling both our workmates and our classmates about Jesus without the threat of severe persecution. Yet in this passage today, we see the opposite of comfortable, displayed by both the Jews and the Romans. With their pride in their own systems of authority and politics, um, challenged by this gospel work. And we're going to see how Paul will continue on to proclaim the gospel, even though he's likely to die. Now, with this all in mind, let me pray as we kick off tonight. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we read your word today, be at work in us by your spirit. Amen. Uh, last week, Adam took us through the section before this one, describing the way of which Paul was resolute to go to Jerusalem. Despite the repeated warnings and pleadings of the disciples of Tyre, Agabus the prophet, and Philip the evangelist, they continued on towards Jerusalem. And they prayed one thing, 
that the Lord's will be done. Now, when they get to Jerusalem, they don't encounter the persecution straight away. They're actually warmly welcomed by all that are there, in verse 17. From there, Paul reports all that has been done among the Gentiles. But as this joyous news is received, a warning is also given. Many Jews that have been saved, that's great. But there are also many Jews who have misunderstood Paul's message and feel very threatened by his ministry. They are under the impression that because Paul is inviting Gentiles into God's kingdom, that he does not trust in the Jewish law anymore, and specifically the law of Moses. His host suggests that Paul demonstrates and upholds the law by taking a vow, along with four other men. So that is exactly what Paul does. Now, throughout the book of Acts, we can see that Paul is in a mess. Even if you go back in the book of Acts now, we can see that Paul, as he proclaims the gospel, encounters persecution pretty much all the time, whether that's through the religious authorities or the governing rulers of the area. So what I'm going to do tonight is not necessarily look at it chunk by chunk, but specify how the people react. So first, we're going to look at the Jews. Second, we'll look at the Romans. And then, more widely, we're going to look at us as sinners. So if you're a note taker, uh, you can have a look on the back of your outline, uh, and that's where we'll be going tonight. And we're up to point one, the gospel versus religious complacency, from verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought the Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. As we can see in this passage, the Jews from the province of Asia are riling up the crowds. And Paul, they say that Paul is against three things. The people, the law, and the place, that being the temple. Now, throughout the book of Acts, if we look back in chapter 15, this is what it says in 15 verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. Unless you are like a Jew, they say, you cannot be saved. But note also how in this passage they attack Paul. They call each other fellow Israelites. They personalise it so that people would become more angry against Paul for disregarding the Jewish systems that have been put in place. They had developed such an insecurity in their own systems of religion that pure assumptions are enough to enrage a whole city. Now, we met Trophimus back in chapter 20, who was the break-and-enterer of the temple, and Trophimus is actually from Asia himself. But there's one difference with Trophimus. He's a Gentile. Now, Gentiles weren't allowed into some parts of the temples, and according to the Jews, this is what was written on the inner courtyards. In both Greek and Latin, there was a warning said that any foreigner, if they went past this line, would suffer death. 
And, as Paul takes the vow, that assumption was made. But this type of persecution isn't new in the book of Acts. Just as, we had met, just as I had mentioned, hostility against the Gentile integration of the church is very, similar, uh, very present. Similarly, what is encountered by Paul here, being dragged out of the city and stoned, is very reminiscent of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And as the gates are shut, the news goes higher up the chain. So from verse 31. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that kept following shouted, get rid of him. With Paul on a way to a certain death by this Jewish mob, um, the Roman troops run down and they stop it from happening. As Agabus, back in chapter 21, had prophesied, Paul is bound with two chains. Now, it's at this point in the book of Acts where one commentator describes this. This is the final rejection of the gospel by those in Jerusalem as it goes out to the ends of the earth. And from here, in the next series we do on Acts, this is the last time of which Paul is in Jerusalem. Ultimately, on his way to Rome. The Jews have rejected the one who has come to declare the message to them. The complacency of their own religious system has created a way in which they persecute Paul. And he declares the truth about their Messiah. And as we're going to see later on, the message that Paul proclaims is so, so clear. But they miss the point. Now, similarly to the Jews, the Romans who are overseeing the area at the time show their own complacency. So up to section 2, the gospel versus political complacency, following from verse 35. The violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. Going down to verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Now note here that the Roman authorities would have not been proficient in either Hebrew or Aramaic. So the disconnect between the language barrier here means that they had probably had to take him away to try and actually understand what was going on, which is what they've done. But it takes a sharp turn. As Paul was getting dragged away from a Jewish mob by Gentiles, he asked a seemingly strange question. He says, may I say something to you? Now, in the heat of the moment, that's a bit of a strange question to ask. You might not think it's very important, but it does show something that the Roman officials might not have known about Paul. 
Paul was someone who could speak Greek, and that was the common language of the Roman Empire at that time. Now, Paul answers the commander, stating that he is a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. In other words, there is no doubt that Paul is a Jew, but he also speaks as a Roman. So, obliging, the Roman commander gives him the all clear to speak. Like I mentioned before, we're going to look at his speech in a minute, but we're going to jump down to verse 24 to see their response. So if we jump down to verse 24. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. And then halfway through verse 25. Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? Now I'll give you a minute to think. Does this sound familiar? Just as Paul here is being flogged and interrogating, interrogated, so too was his Messiah. By the same system of authority, he undergoes the same punishment for proclaiming the gospel. Paul is willing to go to Jerusalem to suffer, as we saw last week, but despite that, he points out the unlawful nature about what is, going to do, what is about to happen. A commentator states that, the Romans had a law that if any magistrate did chastise or condemn a free man of Rome without hearing him speak for himself and deliberating upon his whole case, he should be liable to the sentence of the people. The Romans here are calling for their own punishments to be determined by the people if they're going to continue on with what they're doing. But for their sake, they refrain. Fearful would what fearful of what would occur if the Jewish mob got involved. And they also realise that Paul holds a Roman citizenship. Now, in the last two sections, we've seen the response of the Jewish people and the Romans to misunderstand what Paul was preaching. But I think this next, next section especially is about how we can encounter the gospel. How do we respond to it? So, section three, the gospel versus sinners. Now, I think this is the centre of our passage tonight. So after giving permission, permission to speak, he hushes the crowd by motioning his hands. Just imagine how crazy that is. A mob of Jewish people trying to kill you, and all he does is do this. And they go quiet. It's amazing. So, continuing from verse, chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers... Listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under, studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can testify, I even obtained letters from their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. The Jews here in this situation might not have expected Paul to declare what he's just said in Aramaic. Now, earlier on, we learned that the Jews from the province of Asia 
wanted to persecute him because he was against the people. So by declaring this, Paul is just like one of them. Now, trained by a man called Gamaliel, he describes himself as zealous. And if you'd like to check out more about that, turn to Philippians 3. Now, some of you might know I'm a bit of a sports fan. Here we go. One of the all-time things that I would love to do, and I know many sports fans would do, is to meet their favourite sports stars. For example, let's take Steve Smith. Now, Steve Smith is actually a batter in the Australian cricket team, even though he's bowling there. But not only imagine meeting Steve Smith, but training under Steve Smith and training under him for four years. You can study the ins and outs of how he plays, the movements as he bats, and what he thinks about the game of cricket. Ultimately, the way in which you would play cricket would be determined by Steve Smith. If you were to go and train under anyone under the law to live zealously, this rabbi, Gamaliel, was undoubtedly the man to do it. The PhD equivalent of a Pharisee, this was the guy. Now, Paul, on the back of his thorough teaching, is the one who is persecuting the followers of the way, right up till their death. In Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul's conversion, it is mirrored here. And he uses the Jews' own systems of authority to prove his case, with the high priest and the council agreeing with what he says. So from here, Paul has invited us to see all the evidence, all the backing that he is one of them. He is a Jew like them. So continuing on from verse 6. About noon, I came near Damascus. Suddenly, a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told what you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hands into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Walking on his way to persecute those who were the early church, the one who is their saviour appears to him and they, he blocks the way for Paul. He falls to the ground and actually recognises that he is the Lord. Truly his pride in what he was about to do is crushed, falling before the one who he is persecuting. Now, the way in which Paul comes before the Lord is eerily similar of John chapter 9. Just after Jesus healed a blind man with mud in the pool of Siloam, he says this, Jesus said, I come into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Paul, just like the other Pharisees of the time, recognised themselves as with the spiritual sight. But Christ stops them in their tracks 
and declares that they are actually the ones that are blind. So as Paul goes to Damascus, he has spiritual blindness. And now, because he has seen Christ, he is also physically blind. He's been led into Damascus, just as the Romans had done to Paul, bound. This man who was at the top of his people, at the top of his law, is now being led by his hands, visually bound by those who are with him. And to be unbound, he has to go to a Jew, a devout observer of the law, from verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witnesses to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. From this point back in Acts chapter 9, it is the springboard for Paul's mission, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And as we have seen, Paul does not stay in one place, and that is due to his persecution. And we actually see further on in chapter 22, which we're not going to touch on tonight, that the Lord himself warns Paul. He warns Paul to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution that is about to come, even though Paul may have been the best candidate to preach to them. Now, further on, we see the implications of that preaching. In chapter 22, from verse two, uh, 21, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles, crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid him of the earth, he is not fit to live. Now Paul here is faced with the same fate of martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Having the phrase rid him of the earth, I think is a pretty strong turn of phrase. Another translation puts it as, wipe this man off the face of the earth. Completely get rid of this man. They want Paul completely gone. And note why. Is it because Paul's just met Jesus? No. Is it because they haven't yet met Jesus face to face? No. Is it because they've just bound him and they've realised he was bound by the light? No. It was the key line of verse 21. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul has just retold his story of his salvation, how he has met the one who the prophets testified about, who has done wondrous miracles among his people. He is the one who has come to save unworthy people who are stuck in their sin. But the response is met with anger and frustration, ultimately leading further on in chapter 23 for the Jews to plot against Paul which is very similar to that of what Jesus faced. So, some implications for us tonight. We've seen both the Jewish response to Paul's proclamation of his saving faith and the Romans, who in fear of the Jews couldn't even uphold their own requirements. 
Because of their pride within their own systems, whether that's religion or politics, they could not see the truth of the gospel. So I think a question that we could consider is, does our pride hinder our trust in Christ? Now, at the start, I asked the question, are you comfortable? But more specifically, are you comfortable in the gospel? The gospel, as we've seen over this Acts series, is very, very uncomfortable. Paul is earnestly on the road to Jerusalem and eventually to his death in Rome. He knew that the gospel would divide and he knew that every town he went into, suffering was around the corner. That message of salvation, his story of salvation, was not received. So where can our pride hinder our own trust in Christ? It might be the case for some people here tonight that you don't know Christ as your Lord and Saviour. But I urge you, what in your life is halting you from trusting in Jesus? And for those who do know Christ, pride is still an issue that we can all face. Are we confident in our church attendance to save us? Are we confident in our own contributions to salvation? Is it because of the good works or us serving in church? Have a think about those things over summer. Another implication for tonight, the gospel has lots of hard truths. Now, the gospel is very hard on its truth, and many things about it our sinful hearts just don't like. The hard truth of the gospel for the Jews was that it was going out to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. But they could not see it because they were blind. They had too much pride. Now, within all of our hearts, we may have that idea of a deal-breaker. And as we reflect on these questions I'm about to ask, these questions are all pointed to myself as well. What things of my heart go against the hard truths that Scripture gives? Now, as I finish uni, hopefully, by the end of halfway through next year, how could I use the money that I earn from a job to, to continue to proclaim the kingdom? Will I use that money to pursue gain, to gain success, to be comfortable, or will I give it all to Christ? Can we use our families, our partners, to make excuses for living for Christ? Could we seek after non-Christian relationships? Do we seek the things of the world as a type of rejection to the truths of the gospel we know? The truth of Christ doesn't adhere, it doesn't fit in with worldly systems. And those who hold to it are not going to fit in either. So may we be people who in all things adhere to the truth of Christ's death and resurrection and proclaim this right up into the day when he returns. Let me pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul as he followed and served Christ. May we be people who recognise our own pride, consider the hard truths of the gospel and continue to hold firm to its message always. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.